for now. So we figure it's a lot easier for us and maybe more helpful in the end for you if you can kind of tell us where you are. This is the last shindig of the whole weekend. So if you can shout out some like, this is a great thing that I have learned that I did not know before, and I mean like the 10 second version of this thing. Um, or like, this is a big question that I came here with and I'm still struggling with or a thing that has been brought to my attention that I had never considered before that I'm, I'm hoping to make some new steps with. Not all at once. We heard that you're not a very talkative bunch and we plan to fix that, so. For those of you who may not have yet realized, that lovely lady in the purple sweater is also the amazing mother of our organizer. So, if that strong spirit seems familiar. <laughs> How many would you say, when you learned about the conference, you heard about the conference, you saw the flyer, you were like, yeah, that's something I would want to go to? How many people you kind of had to read it a couple of times was like, hmm, maybe. Anybody? There's no condemnation in this space. Right. If you saw the flyer and you were like, there oh, is I'm no way I'm going to that, that. Uh -huh. and then your professor told you you could get extra credit and you were like, ah, I'm in. <laughs> Anybody? No? <laughs> How many people have been surprised by something they've heard this weekend? Tell us what it was. When I was at, uh, in graduate school at Duke, it was a mixed group of students. Um, so I think we were all in our mid-20s, some black students and white students. And we were, black students were talking about how still today, if we are going to travel long distance, there are certain places you don't stop. My wife and I live in Columbus. She is originally from New Orleans. And so 
we are young and not wealthy, so we generally drive together than fly together. <laughs> and there are some places between Columbus, Ohio, and New Orleans, Louisiana, we won't stop. <laughs> and it's par for the course. It doesn't seem abnormal to us. It doesn't really ruffle our feathers. It just is the way it is. And one of our white colleagues erupted in tears because for her, she could not imagine that something so deep, dark was true today for the people she knew and were in relationship with. So thanks for that. Just because uh, you were talking about <coughs> that, a lot of people that, uh, You're getting a mic. Oh, sorry. <laughs> a lot of people look at it as a joke the other way around, like, most people, they don't want to stop in them, them bad, uh, mm -hmm. more African-American uh, uh, places. And I'm thinking, like, there's places I'm definitely not going <laughs> to stop. Uh -huh. <laughs> when I'm going out into the country or going out to different suburbs, uh, like, I'm, I'm not stopping there. But I don't think um, a lot of people realize that, though. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Lafayette College. How many know where Lafayette College is? It's in eastern Pennsylvania, right on the border. It's the last stop before New Jersey. We joked when we were freshmen, you know, you all have escorts on campus that if it's after hours, and usually we think it's for female <coughs> students so you don't have to walk alone at night. We were like, we are black and eastern. We need an escort. We can't be out here by ourselves. <laughs> it was just really exciting for me as a a biracial student on a mostly white campus to see and hear from people like me who are going through the same process as I'm going through an identity and finding themselves among <coughs> others. You know, just people would say something and I think, oh, wait, I thought that, or I feel that right now, or I'm going through that, or maybe I will go through. It's just really encouraging and enlightening to see I'm not alone in this, and it's not something that just I go through as a biracial student, but a lot of us as <clears throat> just people in general go through identity and our ethnicity as individuals. We're going to pray, um, and then we're going to do some uh, storytelling about our own lives, uh, share with you a little bit about some game plan and helpful tips for reconciliation, and then we'll have another time of uh, question asking. So pray with us. God, we are so grateful um, that you are not just smarter than us, but that you love us, um, and that in the ways that you are shaping the story of time for your glory, you have chosen to include us in your family. God, we ask that you would be with us in this place. Help us to be fully present in this moment. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would reign. And God, we ask that when we leave this place, we will leave knowing a little bit more fully who we are, who you've called us to be, and how to do well loving our brother. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So my wife outed my racial identity. <laughs> um, and I am much like Olivia. So my mother is white, my father is, uh, is black, and there was never a space for me to be white. I could be black all day long. I could be biracial. Um, as an 80s baby, that was still kind of like, what is that? 
Um, but there was no space where I could just go and exclusively be white. Um, within my family structure, there were really no parts of, I would say, my family who I was engaged with and I dealt with where I was sort of the other. Um, so family-wise, like, you were just family. Um, but we were raised and our real social and cultural identity um, has been as African-Americans. The interesting thing is I think about race relations, um, I would say probably elementary school, that sort of five years old and up, is really where I sort of learned my racial identity and came to have a Christian identity. Um, my Christian identity, the first church I attended was a small sort of Delaware, Ohio. I grew up in Delaware. Um, maybe similar to Beaver Falls. It's not a big town or city by any stretch. Um, mostly white, but this was an all-white Nazarene church. So my Christian experience and identity was birthed in a pretty much predominantly white environment. Um, my racial identity coming at that, that age was mostly conversations with my parents um, and sometimes more my mom to, know, to learn the real reali realities that there might be people I played with at school that I would never be able to be invited to their house. And that there was always a possibility of white adults meaning me harm. And because as my mother or my father, they couldn't always be there to protect me, given the realities of the world that I lived in, I needed to be aware of that so I could be safe and not just end up in a situation where I didn't know what was going on because they hadn't told me certain things. Now this was juxtaposed to my Christian identity and upbringing in a pretty white environment. Um, so it was, it's, at this stage, as I look back, it's an interesting sort of merging of two different worlds and identities, um, and I think we'll set the conversation for part of our time today as we think about how do we mix our racial and social and cultural identities with our Christian identities? Where do those worlds meet? Where do those things disappear? Um, and where do those things become in stark contrast to one another? I would rest on this chair up here, but if you were at the second to last seminar, seminar, you know that I almost, one, I almost fell off this chair, <laughs> and two, I'm not that tall, so it's actually pretty hard to get up there, so <laughs> not going to do it. Um, in contrast to my husband, I actually grew up in a very large city. I grew up in New Orleans, and that city is also, well, up until Katrina, was a predominantly African-American city. New Orleans was 70% black. So you're thinking like, right, you probably had almost no interaction with white people. That's actually not true. Um, I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood and I grew up for most of my formative years in a black Southern Baptist megachurch. How that works. <laughs> like the pastor of my home church is the head of the Southern Baptist Convention now. Bizarro world. <laughs> Um, but for almost my entire formative life, I went to predominantly white institutions. New Orleans' public school system is 
complicated. And if you've ever read any like social books on the history of like race relations with public schools, like there are mostly no white kids that go to public school in the world, except in the magnet system. And I think, you know, you can say things that are true without being prideful. Like, I was a really smart kid. So I always went to magnet schools. So though the city was 70% black, almost all my schools were about 60% white. <coughs> it meant from the time I could talk, I could code switch. <laughs> like, I have a marketable voice, which you would call this one. And I have my accent, which I actually can't, in, like I cannot voluntarily turn that on. It just, when I'm with the people who that is an appropriate voice for, that's the voice that's on. Um, but there was a small stretch in there when I went to a predominantly black school. And it was like I was the white kid at the black school. There was a person in one of the sessions earlier that talked about people saying they acted white. I mean, so much so that like, if there was a white kid that like happened to be in my grade that year, I was the white kid's friend. <laughs> um, so when it came time for college, like, it was pretty logical for me to have gone to a predominantly white institution. But that didn't mean that I got there and like, was the black kid that hung out with the white people. Like, I had a very strong sense of my own ethnic identity and some real positive associations. And that way, one of the advantages of having grown up in a place where I was not the, like, my culture was the majority culture, was that like being black was awesome. And I was looking for other people to be black with. And I didn't have any art with white people because I had had really positive experiences in that way. So it meant I got to college and functionally speaking was like the bridge builder. I could speak white literally and figuratively. And I could speak black. And it was my job to help the black kids and the white kids figure out why they weren't sitting together at the cafeteria table. My freshman year, at the end of the uh, academic year, at the uh, Black Culture Center, we had this kind of soul food night. Um, African-American black students were together sort of talking about how their year experience had been. Um, at Lafayette, you know all the black people because there aren't that many of them. You knew if somebody was new, if they were visiting and related to somebody, if they were new to the city, like you just, you just knew. Um, and I said, one of the things that I thought helped me be successful at Lafayette was that I had grown up in a family like my mom is white. And people gasped. <laughs> they were like, what? His mom is white? <laughs> And there were a couple of people who had been to my dorm room, so they had seen my family pictures, and they were like, you didn't know that? Um, so one of the things that Khadija and I have in common are we have real, tangible, working, living, and loving relationships um, with our own cultural groups and with others. Um, sometimes, and I would think for me when I went off to college, some of that played out um, and it's just the way things work, so you didn't really think much about it. Um, but as I progressed in college, because I go back to high school, I was a drum major for the marching band, and the marching band was, if our high school was sort of 60, 40, 
white students to black students. The marching band had much more white students than black students. But our sort of student leadership council were more black. I went to one of the largest African-American churches in the city. Um, so again, I sort of still had this healthy, like, you're in relationship with people, you're in relationship with people. Um, when I got to college, and really it was only toward the end of college and after that I could see how campus was set up, you had to be sort of black or white. And you didn't quite, I didn't get that really going through. Um, can I look back and say like, people who designed the, the, the school or the systems didn't want black people to talk to white, no, not really. Um, college is a place where you can come to learn your identity, understand your identity, but sometimes in the worst case, if you don't know them, people make you pick pretty quickly. So if you're not really sure about your own identity, and not because there's something deficient about you, because <laughs> you're 18 <laughs> and you're in a new environment, so you just you have to figure out like how this thing of who this person you are plays out in this new environment. If you're not sure about that, sometimes we pick a trajectory that we don't really quite know we picked. And sometimes we start down the road and we're like, oh, we really don't like this. We don't like these people. And in other, other times, we just, we just sort of end up where we are. Um, for me, my own backstory um, and how I think I got more on a trajectory where I didn't really have as many white friends as I used to was my backstory about white people not being safe. Lafayette had a huge Greek campus. It used to be an all-male campus. <coughs> Um, I think sometime in the late 60s it became co-ed. So there were these gargantuan, beautiful fraternity houses. And if we understand anything about private ownership, money, and your space, for white men, you get to do what you want to do in your own space. So while I had friends, black friends who were on the football team, we play together, we bleed together, on Friday night, wanted to go to a fraternity house for parties and drink. Oh, no, no, that's not a safe environment for me. Because <laughs> they might want to say things or do things or take liberties in their house that don't work for me. So those were environments I did not go into. So there are probably some relationships that I missed because of that. Did that mean that they were all inherently dangerous? No. Did that mean that there were frequent Monday mornings when the stories in the ABC, there was the Association for Black uh, Collegians, when the story was about how the white fraternity wouldn't let the black students into their party because they said the house was too full, but as they walked away, a group of white students got let in. <coughs> and I could hear my father saying, well, <laughs> that's their house. You knocked on their door and wanted to go in, get your own house. And so there was this tension and imbalance. In divinity school, um, I tell people Duke Divinity School offers one of the soundest theological educations you can get. I am a proud alum. I would tell anybody to go, and I don't think it was always popular to be black. Because one thing that is difficult is to figure out how to talk about 
racial identity in the kingdom because it is one of the most divisive things that we confront in society. Um, and so again, there was another tension where on one hand, the church and the kingdom is supposed to be this safe space. But if we look at racial history, just in this country or across the world for that matter, to be in the church did not mean you were saved. <laughs> Sometimes it could be the most dangerous place you could be. So today in our own lives, as we think about how do we talk about being in relationships, um, we've got to deal with what is our own backstory, our own formation, and how is that informing sort of where we are today. A little bit, a side note about how that played out in college. The truth is like, what made me such a bridge builder was that I didn't have that many wounds of my own walking into the door. Mm -hmm. Truth be told, because of the way New Orleans is shaped, I had much more intra-racial issues than I did inter-racial issues. Um, so I became a really good and safe person to be a sounding board for a lot of my white and friends of other ethnicities who were really for the first time confronting issues of race due to the places that they had grown up. As an example, my roommate freshman year was a 5'9", and just if you're gauging, that's like a foot taller than me, white, red-headed woman from Rock Cave, West Virginia. <laughs> no right, joke. Yeah. Not even kidding. And like they gave us uh, information to write each other letters because that's how long ago I went to school. Um, and I asked her where Rock Cave was and she said it was near Buchanan. And I said, where's Buchanan? Because, right, it was foreign territory. But together we were able to kind of work through, I might have been the first black person she had ever had a conversation with in her life. So get through some of the hard things that were true about her assumptions about what it meant for me to be black, who black people were, what they did, what they thought, and get to a place where one, she was able to have some great new experiences. Like I was with her the first time she was the ethnic minority in a room. Like she went to Thanksgiving dinner put on by the Black Cultural Club and she had to leave because she was so uncomfortable and not in a way that was broken. It was that it was kind of a watershed moment in her life, realizing that like this was not some automatic, automated privilege that everybody would be like, think like, and look like her. To today, many, many years later, I can count her as one of the like cherished relationships in my life because we eventually got far enough to realize that we had much more in common than we did not. Um, I've lost our place. Now, where we are next? Me. Yeah, well, that's an awkward place to go next. So I've just told you, this, this is good. I've just told you a really good thing about a good white friend that I have. This, this conference about race and specifically this talk about racial reconciliation, like, raise your hand if you would self-identify as white in the room. Some of the people who are biracial in the room are pausing. You have the like, I mean, I have self-identified. <laughs> like if white, if, if you were checking a box, if white is the only box you would check on the census form. Raise them again. Okay. 
like the tough story of race relations and racial reconciliation in America and in much of the world is you are the villain. And that sucks. And like, I mean that really genuinely. Like when we watch a movie, we don't ever watch the movie and think like, that's it, I totally relate to Bane. Like, <laughs> that's me. Um, and like, I would venture to say for the vast majority of you, you are the villain in that story by no fault of your own. And you're the villain with some privileges that you didn't ask for. They're just yours. And for that, and like for some of the burden that comes with it, I'm not gonna say I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm gonna say I'm sorry. Like, I imagine that there are days, if you are being honest and trying to do good work in the realm of race relations, where that probably feels like a nearly impossible burden. And that's not something that you might think that I can relate to, but as we kind of talk through this, the truth is, in the story of our faith, we all begin as the bad guy. Like, you are not the hero in the story of Jesus. You're not like, you would be called out among the scoffers. Some of us like to read the story of the faith, and we look at the story of the crucifixion, and we think we would have been right there next to the cross. Don't do it to my friend, but it's, it's not true. <laughs> I think for most of us, even on our very best days, we probably would have been Peter, like, and we have in our own lives, before we said yes to Jesus and after we said yes to Jesus, we have turned our backs on him, we have turned our face towards him, we have accidentally hurt him, and sometimes we have decided that we want our own way, we want what we want, like, we know bad guy, we know how to do that. And the good news in that is like, we also know redemption. We know that we're told that like, this thing that we've been called into, this family of God, this body of Christ, part of that package is the ministry of reconciliation. Racial reconciliation <laughs> falls under that heading, but like, we are with Christ reconciling all things. <coughs> You're doing healing in a lot of broken places. And that's healing that we do together not in spite of, but along with who we are ethnically. The story of like this ethnic business, some of you are like me and there are some dysfunctional scriptural things you were taught. So like you know in the beginning we were told to be fruitful and multiply and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, da 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 da. Like the deal with that is like create culture, like have babies and spread out. Fill, fill all the space. And like, you might not realize that there was some intentionality in that, like God had a game plan for the end at the beginning. And the game plan for that is that scripture we've been talking about in Revelation. Like, the plan was for there to be people from every tribe and nation and language who could declare his glory and display his splendor. And we get to see a couple marks in the story of scripture of us doing poorly and him helping us along. So like the trick of Babel, a lot of you have heard the story of the Tower of Babel and you've heard like God was punishing people by giving them language. Raise your hand if you've ever, different languages. Anybody ever heard that before? Like, okay, when I was in college, a campus minister taught me that it was the best possible version of punishment because the big thing they were doing was not fulfilling the command to spread out and have babies. 
They needed to create culture because we needed to get to this thing where there were people and tribes and languages. This was a help to do that. And then we see the story of Pentecost and all of a sudden like people are speaking these different languages and they can understand each other. It's profound to us that like he didn't suddenly make them speak the same language. They're still speaking different languages, but they can understand each other. Like that's that's powerful fruit for us today as we're continuing to speak different languages and not always understand each other. So when we get to the end, like we have this place in Antioch, like when the Christian church is first starting to happen, like they have everything all together in common, but it doesn't mean they're the same. It means they are working together despite their differences. Like see tension in the early church where like we end up with deacons because they weren't doing a good job of taking care of the Greeks that were among them. So if you look at the names of the people who are first named deacons, they're all Greek guys. Because they said, like, since it's your people complaining, and not in a, like, go deal with your folks kind of way, and the, like, we probably will not be doing a good job of fixing this problem that it seems we've allowed to start. So please help us fix the problem. Lead that team. Like, in case you think race relations stuff just started in like 1492 when like the American experiment started, it didn't. Like people have been having cross-cultural problems <laughs> for a while. But our Kathy's mom thinks I'm hilarious. <laughs> I, feel, I feel good about this. Stuff. Like there is good fruit to be gleaned in our story. I would posit that there are a lot of humanists doing a lot of good stuff regardless of the ways people look. We, the church, the kingdom, have not just some answers, but some reasons for why we should all be getting along. And if we think of ourselves as sinners, and that's where we kind of enter into the kingdom, we fall under the curse of Adam. We were not around in the garden. We don't even know where that tree is. But we, we bear the curse but also not just the curse that we have inherited from Adam in a way that we could absolve ourselves like, well, that doesn't have anything to do with me. We all are also guilty of our own sin. And so the way in which we become in relationship or reconciled to Christ is through grace. And it is that same act of grace that we then become reconciled with one another. And then as the body of Christ that is reconciled with one another, across culture, across our differences, that's how then we are able to offer as the church and the kingdom reconciliation to the rest of the world. Um, one of the things I love about the theology that exists within the CCO is the, the reference of the scripture that the creation is just waiting for us to get it right. Just waiting. If it were, it's kind of one of those things, if it was easy to do, some of it would have already done it by now. There are people who have done it. There are people who are doing it. It's hard work. But, you know, most good things are hard work. Um, when we were in the, in the conversation in here with the, with the uh, panel, somebody had raised the issue about, you know, not asking offending questions or not being offensive. I mean, the truth is my wife and I offend one another. <laughs> Relationship doesn't keep you from offense. <laughs> um, there, there are some things that are offensive. 
And no matter how we clean them up, they're just going to be offensive. But to be in relationship is to be vulnerable to one another. But to be vulnerable is not to be free from that vulnerability cashing itself in. If you are vulnerable to somebody and they never really hurt you, were you really vulnerable to begin with? <laughs> you know, you ever found yourself in a relationship with somebody where you have put so many walls up, like you realize like this isn't really a relationship at all. Like you have just safeguarded yourself from everything that could hurt you. And then you realize like there's no real relationship in that. The tricky thing between my wife and I is like we can hurt each other like nobody can. And so we both have to guard ourselves from hurting the other, but we also have to give the other one space. That sometimes, like, you gonna hit me in the face and... Not literally. Like, Not literally. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, okay, time out, that was rough. <laughs> um, in terms of social things, it was funny, we were talking about, you know, asking questions that are offensive. And it, it's easy to get ramped up when we talk racial discussions. But it can be offensive as a young couple for people to ask us if we're trying to have kids. That's none of your business. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have to be sensitive sometimes to our audience about what questions we ask. It may be inappropriate because maybe we are and we're having trouble. And now we're in the grocery store and you are bringing up this issue that's very personal and deep and hurtful to me. And now I got to try to go around the rest of my day being reminded of something that's none of your business. Does that mean that you're a bad person because for you, when people get married, they have families and children because those are the kind of things we want? No, but that still is an offensive question. <laughs> and it's one of the things that as we become adults, we learn like when things are appropriate and when they're not. <laughs> and that some things can be offensive. Sometimes we learn, and, <laughs> and I use that pregnancy one, sometimes we learn that the hard way. <laughs> you ask somebody like, oh, are you pregnant? And they're like, no, I just eat a lot of cake. <laughs> <laughs> and the next time, the next time you think like, I think she might be pregnant, but I'm not going to ask. Because <laughs> maybe she just eat ice cream. <laughs> so we wanted to, we, we kind of really wrestled a lot with what do you say in an hour about racial reconciliation? Um, some people will say racial reconciliation. Some people will say, well, you can't reconcile something that never was. Some people would say the ministry of new things. Like, people have all kind of different names. That's fine. That's good. It's tricky any way you slice it or deal with it. Um, so we wanted to start by sort of sharing some of our own stories, our own background, some of our own journey. And then as we recognize this is the end of this sort of day and a half, two day session, to leave it open for some questions for you as it relates to either anything that we have said or shared, where we are, what we think, hoping that it may be helpful for your journey, or just to sort of get your question out here as you all exist in this community that will allow this conversation and this great, difficult, but able to be successful work to continue. Well, okay, I know racism exists, but I've never been racist or prejudiced to somebody 
and my family, maybe they, they weren't, maybe they weren't. Mm -hmm. Maybe they were the abolitionists who came in and weren't. Right. And so you're just like, can someone ask a question? Why is this relevant to me? What I need to reconcile? I never was in a fight to begin with. Why mm -hmm. am I reconciling? How do you answer that? And someone says, why is this even a relevant conversation for me as a, as a white individual mm -hmm. to have? I'd say if you are in, I think the language we've been using in the context of the weekend is the majority culture. I'm hesitant to use that specifically because like white Americans days as the majority culture are numbered from a census perspective. Like that will not numerically be accurate for very long. <laughs> um, <coughs> but the truth is even if it's not a fight you've been fighting in a negative way, you are still the winner. Like. Sure, the president is biracial, uh, but it's still rough to not be white in America. Heck, it's rough to be the president. He was, <laughs> he was recently at some big event in Russia, like some big official event, and none of the officials at the official event would shake his hand. He is the right, leader right. of the free world. Um, there are still rights and privileges and advantages that you enjoy, that you did not earn, that you did not pay for, um, that are unfair and like that you cannot, despite your <coughs> desire, just magically give back. Mm -hmm. um, well, and as a man in ministry, I would tell you that I'm supportive of women in ministry. I think the first, if we think about gospel ministers being those that proclaim Jesus is alive, was a woman. It was Mary. She had met Jesus, and he, Jesus said, go tell the men <laughs> that I'm alive. So as, as open to equality as I can be in ministry, I cannot just say like, well, what does a problem with women in ministry have to do with me? Everything. Because I'm in a position of keeping the gate, oftentimes wielding power and thought and authority, so I can be in a place to help people open up their minds, or sometimes just sit people down. Like, well, too bad, you're not in charge of this decision. <laughs> there are going to be women on this program. Um, and so, and, and, and because from a, 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 a racial, like, we didn't choose this. Like, <laughs> we come in the package, we come in. Um, the other thing is, to th I often think about and approach racial relationships and think about what are the other identities that I have that I may not be in control of. Because for a lot of, I'm sure, white Christian students at Geneva, you know there are some white circles where you are the other. You are really the peculiar chosen people. And you can be in a very monochromatic environment and think, I don't fit. I don't think like that. I don't behave like that. I'm not interested in those things. And so how do you then have those kind of relationships? Like, how do you have a relationship with your friends who drink? How do you have a relationship with your friends who, you know, whatever the sort of code of ethics of your life is? They do things differently than you do. Socioeconomic. My favorite in the church is politics. Mm -hmm. Especially in the white church. Because there is this guise of unity, like we are all the same. Except that thing we don't talk about. 
because if we talk about where we fall on the political spectrum, then we can't be friends anymore. <laughs> and so we just don't talk about it like it don't exist. <laughs> so part of the responsibility we have when we are in the majority or in a place of privilege or power is not just to acknowledge where we feel or offer equality to people, but it's to advance the equality in the larger scheme of wherever we're the privileged ones. Well, and here's the thing. We've talked a lot about privilege, specifically of white privilege, as a burden. And like, sure, there are days that it's a burden. The truth <coughs> is, like, it is an incredible blessing that you have. When, like, you hear language <coughs> like healer of broken places or sore of walls, like, you, white people of faith, have an incredible opportunity to do something in a way, like in influential ways that not necessarily everybody gets to do. Um, and it should make you really excited. It won't every day, but like it's a really exciting proposition. Um, we often talk about non-whiteness as though it is some kind of disability. And like, that's inaccurate. Like, I, my blackness is not dis like, it's not like my leg is broken or like I am infirmed in <coughs> some way. I'm really excited about being black. I love my brownness. I'm the color of the inside of a pecan shell. Like, I, <laughs> I found a wonderful man in Columbus who knows how to mix makeup just right so that it looks nice on my skin. Like, I am enjoying being this black New Orleanian woman. And frankly, mm -hmm. I, think <laughs> I think you're missing out on a lot of stuff if you're not friends with somebody like me. <laughs> like, I enrich your life, so. <laughs> If nothing else, <coughs> frankly, you are missing out on some life enrichment by only hanging out with people who you literally have everything all together in common with. Right here. It's, it's really hard for me to ask you this question. Give you some budget for ground. I remember don't, your don't voice. You asked that great question in that breakout <laughs> earlier. You're Russian, yes? Uh, yes, I'm Russian. I don't like, don't like microphones. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think that I would say a couple of backgrounds. Basically, basically, in Russia, people don't really care about black people. They care about here, and they use N-word all the time. And it's not because of racism. It's just because we don't have black people. Right. And people, <coughs> it's really hard for me sometimes to be around my people when they say that word. It's like, no, you cannot say that. Some, some of my family sometimes visit me here, and they would use that word around in the places and I would be so offended myself. I was like, no, you cannot say that. <laughs> it's like, and they cannot understand what, what the heck is it like, what are you talking about? They cannot understand that. Uh, they would sometimes say, like, oh, they call each other and words, why we can't call mm -hmm. them the same. That's what they would tell me all the time. But what my question is, my, one of my family member one, once asked me this question, and I still can't, I can answer it, but I don't think it satisfies my family at all. Uh, the question is, why do God created uh, black, round, and white people? Why, do, why do the, does God create black people at all? That was a question that, f for 
It's a good question. Um, the, now the funny version of the beginning of that question is, if we can rely on current like geological evidence and balance that in the story of scripture we have, God created black people before he created any other kind of people. <laughs> black, <laughs> black is the default setting, so that might be some bad news for your relatives. <laughs> you might not, you might not want to lead with that. <laughs> but I think it goes back to the story we were talking about a little bit ago, this whole idea of creating culture and if we think of ourselves as being made in the image of God, in the figurative and in the literal sense, it would be ridiculous of us to think that God, <laughs> it's the train, I'm guessing. It makes me sound kind of omniscient. <laughs> yeah. It would be ridiculous of us to think that any of our like physical selves, like me only, you only, could fully encompass all of what and who it means for the Godhead to be the Godhead. And it makes sense to me, given the story of scripture and all of my experience of the Godhead, that he would need as much variety as possible and be interested in as much diversity as possible to encompass his glory. Because that's the thing, like, this end scene, this like climactic scene of the story of time and humankind, the point of that scene is God. Like God is the star of the story of time. And that's not because God is prideful. Like God can't be prideful. He's God. Like if his whole desire for creating humankind was so that there was like a 150 crayon pack worth of ways to show and declare how awesome he is, that's fine, because that's still not a sufficient example of how awesome he is. Like, the point of us is to display his splendor, and diversity makes sense for the displaying of his splendor. The other thing that is tricky, and part of the, the background of a question like, why did God make black people, is like, why does God let bad things happen? Because there's a presupposition that there's like some negative quality about black people. And if that's where somebody starts, there's not a whole lot you and I can say to answer their question. You know, and so there are sometimes we have to, as much as we wish people were in a different place, as sophisticated as their question may seem, they are looking for a justification of the way they see the world. And so there is only so much we're gonna be able to do for people when that's where they're at. One of the hard things about where you are as college students, whether you are five minutes from home or five days journey, <laughs> you will learn and experience some things in this place and you will stop doing some things that your family does. Some of them will be for the good some of them not so good. Some of them will be subtle. You will decide, you may be from a, uh, a woman from a very conservative uh, Christian background and you have never wore pants. We had a student who told us this. And she wore pants to church for the first time. She was like, I felt like I had to call my mother and tell her. Now that was... <laughs> Relatively <laughs> minor, depending on where you're from. <laughs> but for her, it was a really watershed moment about 
how her femininity was portrayed in the world. It may be what you eat. You may come from a family that don't eat vegetables. And you come to college and you meet a vegetarian. And you learn some things about how eating vegetables are healthy. And so you're like, you know what? I'm just going to eat more vegetables in my life. And you go home and your family is like, what's wrong with you? What is that? <laughs> and right, and some of it is small and funny. Some of it could be as profound as you come from unchristian homes where people curse a lot. And you come to Geneva and you're just like, oh, that's not cute here, huh? I'm going to change the way that I talk. I'm at least going to try to work on it. <laughs> and that can, be, that can then cause a lot of tension when you go home, because people will say like, oh, you think you're different now because you go to that college up there. Not really, but kind of. And that's part of how we find our way in the world. But we always have to remember, again, when people are asking us questions, as sophisticated as they may be, if they are simply looking for an answer to justify their position, that's, there's not a whole lot you're going to be able to do with that question. I don't know where we are on time. Ten minutes. Thank you. Maybe two more questions. Back there. <clears throat> I just really like how um, we've just discussed how uh, relationships are really uh, one of the most important factors when it comes to um, relating to other people with different backgrounds and uh, ethnicities. And I was just wondering um, what your perspective would be on um, how, how you interact with other people of, um, of different, different ethnicities, um, kind of discussing um, their perspective that they have and um, talking with them about your perspective that you have um, based on your difference in your ethnicity. Can I talk about the experience I had at college? So I've said a couple of times, like, I got to do some fun bridge building in college. I should identify that, like, not all of that was really fun in the literal sense. My sophomore year of college, my campus ministers organized a spring break trip to Jackson, Mississippi to hang out with a guy named John Perkins. Anybody heard of that guy? <laughs> I hung out with him the next spring break and the one after that. He's pretty cool. Um, but it was a group that was pretty ethnically mixed. And the point of the trip was to experience this community that Mr. Perkins and his church had formed, uh, but also to work through really the hard stuff of race relations in the context of the American story with each other in preparation to be able to do that in the other circles we were a part of. Like we were all students who were leaders and people of influence around campus. So like for us to be doing hard work <coughs> to bring that work to other places. And that way the thing that was most significant is that we had covenanted, promised each other that we would be safe space. And that no matter what came up or how it came up, we would figure out how to fight another day with each other. And that we would not let those conversations with consequence just be conversations in that room. 
And when we saw each other on campus, we would not pretend like we weren't in relationship. We wouldn't walk past each other on the quad and like act like that wasn't somebody we had cried with the night before. Like we found a way to strategically and scarily on some level work through the stuff in our own stories and the stuff that was happening in the community on our campus. Um, for those of you who are current college students, like I highly commend that to you. I don't know who is in charge of spring break, small groups, any sort of thing like that. I'm guessing you could probably talk to, what do they call you around here? So talk to Missy if you're interested in doing some long spring break type situation. My guess is you could talk to Keith or Kathy if you were interested in just like straight up having some kind of small group that was a conversation. And like when I say conversation with consequence, I mean like you're not just getting together because you'd like to know why black girls don't wash their hair every day. Like <laughs> you, you probably do that in the dorm room. <laughs> and we don't because we don't have as much oil in our hair and we have to add oil instead of take it away. So it would all fall out if we washed everything. Um, but I think you need to be intentional and strategic, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not telling you, like, go get a black friend as a project. It's a bad plan. <laughs> like, <laughs> do not all go find the same Puerto Rican girl on Monday in your class and, like, try to talk to her. Do not go to the local Korean restaurant and, like, try to strike up some profound conversation. Like. This is a baby step type situation and like God will honor your steps but, it, but be strategic. And I know I've just told you things that sound conflicting like don't run out and go get somebody but do something. Do something. If you're a student here, your something might be scheduling a meeting with Kinzer Downs or Downs to say, <laughs> hey, so here's where I am. Here is my background. I would like to get a plan for how to like get some color besides peach involved in my life. Um, and I think they would be excited to help you figure out how to make active steps to, to make that happen. There are bigger questions. There are questions of justice and all those kinds of things. I think most of you are at step like one 1.a right now. So a good step at step 1.a is finding a trusted member, a trusted enlightened person, ethnically speaking, and seeing if they can help you get a game plan together. I'll take the N-word, you take uh Oh, I was going to say the N-word. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, part, 
And again, if we take things out of the racial context and say, are there other places where certain people have a language that other people are not allowed to? My grandmother and her best friend use language that could raise the dead. In a bad way. She will pick up the phone and you will think somebody who stole from her mama was on the phone. And then they both erupt in laughter. They call each other all kind of names in the book. That you probably don't want us to use I that can't too. use that. And that is, that is part of like their friendship. They're related. That's what they do. Nobody else better do that. <laughs> <laughs> Does that make it right? Does it make it wrong? You could argue probably either way. Um, From an academic level, people would usually say that like the using of a, a word that is like intended usually for harm among people who would be harmed by that word, like the act is to take the power out of the word. So like, when I, I'm gonna say it like, when I call Landon a nigga, that's not the same thing as if you called him one. Um, at the same time, I will tell you that like as it, inside our context, like sometimes we just use that word, like black people sometimes use that word in the same way that like your uncle uses it when he is talking about black people. We don't necessarily use it to talk about people who we like, but we will sometimes use it when we're talking about people who portray the negative images that we feel ashamed of, that you think are true about all of us. We got burglarized twice in December by some young kids that lived in our neighborhood. My grandmother is 77, she's having some health challenges, and we had managed not to tell her yet, because the game plan was don't tell her until we get an alarm system in the house, because then we can say there was a problem, we fixed it, it's good, it's don't okay. Worry. The second time it happened, the news media showed up, and I was like, well, I gotta call her, because she at home and she gonna be watching the news and then she gonna panic. <laughs> This is my father's mother, a black woman, and she says, <laughs> she was like, well, I know they was black. <laughs> I know they was. <laughs> and they were. They were. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> you right, but that is really unfortunate. <laughs> and the, the honest thing is, some of the things that are broken about who we are, the groups that we are in, there are some things that people will say about Christians. That are true. That are true, and it is tragic. The fact that it's tragic don't make it untrue. And the fact that it's true doesn't mean we have to live into that. It simply means, and this is real good in Baptist wrapping up, <laughs> we need grace to be who God, needed, who, who God has called us to be, we need grace to be in relationship with each other, and we need grace together to be what God has called us to be. Amen? Amen. Go out into the world and have courage to love and serve the Lord. Amen.